All right, brothers and sisters, let's turn now to Matthew chapter 1. And I'm just going to read from verses 18 to 23 tonight. Matthew 1, verses 18 through 23. We'll stand one more time and read this portion of Scripture. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray you would open this word up to us tonight, that this would have new meaning, more of a powerful impact upon our hearts, our minds, our souls tonight, by your Holy Spirit's working in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, brothers and sisters, tonight I want to answer the question one more time, why did Jesus come? Why did Jesus come? Why had Mary conceived a child by the Holy Spirit? And both reasons are contained in this passage. And there's more to it, but this this summarizes the purpose for Christ's coming, for the incarnation of Jesus to become one of us. He would, first of all, save us from our sins. So that's The first reason why Jesus came in verse 21, you see that, don't you? She will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The purpose of Jesus' coming is contained in these two names. The first of which is that Jesus would save us from our sins. The name Jesus, as you know, is the Old Testament name Joshua. I hadn't thought about this, but we typically don't name our children Jesus, but we name our children Joshua, but it happens to be the same name. So I was just thinking we have two or three, is it three or, maybe it's three or four Joshuas in this church. We don't typically refer to them as Jesus, but that's effectively the same name, isn't it? Joshua is the word Yeshua, saves, or God saves, the Lord saves, and that's the name Jesus. So Jesus came first to save us from our sins, so that's why his name was called Jesus, because he would save us from our sins. Secondly, the second name is Emmanuel. You see that in verse 23. The virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So that, of course, comes from Isaiah 7. All right, so Jesus came to be God with us, God in relationship with us, that God would be able to come to us and dine with us and to be with us and to have relationship with us in the God-man himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus becoming the connection between God and man for us. The, the Christian faith 
is quite unique from all other worldviews. Now, I'm going to draw some of this from my recent work that I've been doing, contrasting worldviews on this issue of salvation. It's been a very interesting study, so I thought I'd share it with you tonight. Um, test drive it on the six people that show up, I guess you would say. But, uh, but what is interesting is just the contrast with other worldviews, really sharp, really distinct. And here's, I think, my big takeaway, is that the Christian faith is really quite serious. The Christian faith is very sober, and I think we see this quite often. Everybody else in the workplace come together for the corporate party. Everybody seems to be quite light and eager to get drunk and just to have a good time, except for that Christian, Uh, perhaps two Christians sitting over in the corner uh, having a serious conversation. I would that would experience I had several times uh, at the university and also in the corporate world. So we, we, we know this, that Christians really tend to be quite serious. And I think the reason for this is that everybody else is interested in minimizing man's problem and the solution. That's, that's the real crux of it. That's what makes us so much different from every other worldview in the world. I include, include the cults in that, Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons. But the Christian God doesn't do this. In fact, when we read about the gospel, it seems that God is very serious about the issue, the problem, and the solution. In fact, it just seems that God has gone to great lengths, to a great deal of trouble to bring about man's salvation. Now, that is quite a surprise, very stunning to the natural mode of thinking about these things, because the natural mind is not sober, it's not serious, not really dealing with the issue. In consideration of the nature of sin and the law of God from a Christian perspective, one cannot help but be struck by the sheer enormity of the human problem. I want you to think about this for just a moment. What did Adam do in the garden? You remember what he did? Kind of a simple thing. It wasn't very much involved in what Adam did in the garden to bring about all of the devastation to the world. He took a bite out of a fruit. That was, that was it really didn't do anything else. That was it. A single disobedient action resulted in all the pain and evil in the world. The agony, the broken relationships, the depressions, the suicides, the wars, the cruelty, the murders, universal death for mankind, and the damnation of hell, where the fire is not quenched and the worm never dies. Now, again, I want you to think about this for a moment. What sort of offense should bring about such a consequence. I mean, you think about it. Just eating an apple or eating, taking a bite out of a fruit, it wouldn't think that that would produce all of this devastation, as we have seen. What sort of offense would warrant such a reaction? Did God overreact? You see, that, that's the question that comes to the mind of natural man. Now, the first thing to say from a Christian perspective, from our perspective tonight, is that God must take his own law very seriously. That despite the fact that you know, nobody else by nature in the entire universe wants to take God's law seriously. God does. God does take it seriously. So therefore, we need to say that the law of God must be holy. And God must be most exceedingly holy in order to bring about a reaction as to what we find in God's word. Indeed, sin must constitute the most egregious defilement of the holy creation of God. 
and quite the infinite insult to the holiness of God, warranting such utterly terrifying, severe judgment at the divine dictate. Above all, what holiness must be offended by sin that would require the sacrifice of the eternally beloved Son of God for sinners like us. In other words, it must have been a very serious offense, a very serious offense, that God would send His only begotten Son, the Son whom He loved, in order to provide for that salvation for sinners like us. This is the point at which all the man-made religions of the world have it all wrong. They utterly fail to come to grips with the problem with man or to arrive at the solution. Every religion or worldview perspective presents what is perceived to be the problem with man and then offers a solution. And every other worldview has set out to minimize the problem of sin. This is all part of suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. Entire systems of thought are invented, attempting to reduce man's problem to something more manageable on our own. Ignoring God's holiness and removing the notion of God's judgment and hell. Only the Christian faith is willing to seriously grapple with man's problem. No other worldview is willing to engage the severity of the problem or offer the only effective solution to it. That's because these other worldviews are geared to soften the impact, anesthetize the conscience, and pave a smoother way to hell. But now, what I'd like to do is I'd like to present the salvation of Jesus Christ. Jesus very simply came to earth to save his people from their sins. They needed salvation. The problem was sin, and he came to save us from our sins. But the question tonight, how does he save his people from their sins? Well, we say by dying on the cross and rising from the dead. But now there are multiple aspects to Christ's salvation, his death on the cross for our sins, and I want to go over that this evening. What was accomplished by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? There are multiple problems with man, and therefore there must be multiple aspects to the solution for man. By his fall into sin, man is saddled with four problems. Okay, here they are. Four problems. That's the first time I think I've ever brought this together in a message, so I hope this is going to be somewhat helpful for you. In in preaching, we often hit one thing or another thing. We just kind of keep hitting different things throughout the preaching ministry of a church over the years, but oftentimes we kind of get lost in the pieces. So tonight, I'd like to bring together the four things, the four problems with man, and then the four solutions that Jesus brought to us by his death on the cross. By our fall into sin, man is saddled with four problems. Here they are. First is relational. Second is forensic. Thirdly is substantial. And fourthly is spiritual. Okay, one more time. Relational, forensic, substantial, and spiritual. Those are four problems with man. The first problem is relational. Man's relationship with God was broken. Secondly, man's forensic problem in the divine court has left him guilty and subject to eternal condemnation. Now, when we say forensic, we typically mean the judicial aspect, okay? When, when you have a forensic problem, it means you've broken a law and you're going to have to show up at court at a certain time and you'll probably be sentenced to serve because of your criminal action. So that's a forensic process. All right. So man's forensic problem in the divine court leaves him guilty and subject to eternal condemnation. Okay. Thirdly, 
Man has a substantial problem. What is that? That's a substance issue. Something wrong with our nature. Okay? Man's very substance or nature has been corrupted, which is a form of death. Okay? We sometimes use the word corruption. Sometimes we use the word of death. It's either way. You see something that's corrupting. You say, well, that's dying or dead. Sometimes, you know, as, as older people, we just kind of, our flesh is kind of corrupting, our face is kind of getting all warped and wrinkly, and that's, it's, it's, it's corruption. That's what's happening. It's all breaking down. Corruption is like that breaking down. We're heading towards death. That's the trajectory we're on. So we use those words interchangeably, corruption or dying. Okay, so man has a substantial problem. And then finally, man has a spiritual problem. Man's spiritual condition has him under the grip and rule of Satan. In the general sense, the Bible speaks of Christ's death for our sins. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. That's what we read in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, that's best taken to mean that Jesus died on the cross for the sake of our sins. Sin is the problem. And he came to die for this problem to save us from this problem. Matthew 121, as we just read. For Christ also has once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. 1 Peter 3 and verse 18. So the scriptures also develop an answer to how Christ died for our sins in a little more detail for each of the four categories of man's sinful corruption. So let's hit these one by one, and we'll finish up the message tonight. So here we go. How does Jesus restore relationship? Remember, we had a relational problem, so let's hit that problem first. Romans 5 and verse 10 tells us, If when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So our relationship with God goes beyond that of judge to defendant. Okay, We, we have a relationship with God of judge to defendant. We do have that. That's a forensic issue. But it goes beyond that. Not just judge to defendant. Yeah, we stand in the courtroom naked. We, 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 we are guilty before God, before God the judge, yes. But, but the issue goes beyond that. Most judges do not take personal issue with the accused. You don't find judges, you know, jumping off the, the, the bench and coming down and throttling the defendant. You know, you don't see that typically. But that's what God does to us by nature. Most judges don't take personal issue with the accused. Their job is to rule dispassionately according to the law of the land. This, however, is not the case in the courtroom of Almighty God. Consider the judge who adjudicates the case of the murder of his own son. Judges today would recuse themselves from these cases. Okay, that's the way it works in, in our courtrooms. If, if, if somebody kills the judge's son, that judge is not going to adjudicate the case would be against the law for them to do that. But consider the judge who adjudicates the case of the murder of his own son. God will do this with us. God will adjudicate the case. Now, at issue is both the legal problem and the relational problem. Man is guilty at the bar of God, but he also faces a cosmic hostility or enmity with the judge of the universe. The Son of God now died on the cross as a blood sacrifice in order to restore that relationship between God and man. Closely related to the idea of reconciliation with God is the word propitiation. The word is translated atonement or mercy seat because it's the same word used for the covering over the Ark of the Covenant in the Holiest of Holies, in the Old Testament temple. 
The same words used in Hebrews 9.5 where references made to the mercy seat. The word may be translated to placate or to reconcile. It's used often in classical writings referring to the Greek pagan gods who needed to be placated. The blood covering over the gold lid on the Ark of the Covenant stood between God and man pointing to the shed blood of the Son of God. The blood was placating. The blood removes the wrath and restores friendship with God. Much as modern man does not want to think about this, God does, not, God does need to be placated by blood sacrifice. God takes offense to man's attitude and to, to, to him, not only because he is a dispassionate God, judge or a computer program, but because God is personality. It relates to man as a person, relates to a person. So we read of this propitiation in Romans 3.24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. So there we have the propitiation God set forth through Jesus Christ, through the blood of Christ. Okay, now secondly, let's move on to the second. We have the restoration of innocence. Restoration of innocence. We have a restoration of relationship by Jesus who reconciles us by the propitiation of his, of his blood on that cross for us that reconciles us to God, but now the restoration of innocence. Listen to Exodus 34, 6-7. The Lord passed by before Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin and that will by no means clear the guilty. So there's an interesting text in which we find God as merciful to us, extending mercy, and yet he is also the judge and cannot clear the guilty. This appears to be a contradiction. The justice of God demands a just punishment. The human inclination to justice is only a minuscule reflection of God's commitment to justice. Will not the just judge of the earth do right and execute perfect justice? Thus, this forensic problem demands just retribution. The judge whose son was killed may choose to reconcile himself with a murderer, but he is in no position to clear the guilty. You see, so, so the judge can sort of forgive personally, but the problem is the man has still violated his law. So now what does the judge do? Can he just forgive the man who killed his own son? Not in the position of a judge. He cannot do that. He cannot just clear the guilty. So to address this predicament, God himself chose to intervene by sending his only begotten son into the world and to give him up on the cross so that he would be both just and the justifier of those who come to him by faith. The word used here is typically remission of sins or the taking away of sins. Look at Hebrews chapter 10 and follow this through. It is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. By that will we have sanctified through the offering of the body of the blood Jesus Christ once for all their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these there is no longer an offering for sin. So it's by reason of the death of Christ that we have forgiveness of sins and a right standing before God. That's what Hebrews 10 is telling us. It was not possible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away those sins. 
that could only come by the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That is how the remission of sins occurs for us. Now, there's also a re- securing of the redemption or the ransom price. We, we see this through the, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross for us. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. That's Matthew 20 and verse 28. So address, to address the problem of slavery to sin and the devil, this is the spiritual challenge. This is the, the bondage, the spiritual bondage that we are in by nature. To address that problem of slavery to sin and the devil, Christ's death paid the ransom price for us. The question, though, that many have debated over the last 2,000 years of church history is, who receives the ransom price? Have you ever asked yourself that? Okay, so, you know, typically you pay the price to a kidnapper in order to get, or, or you pay it to a slave owner in order to get the, uh, the person freed from that kidnapper or that slave owner. But, but who receives the ransom price? That question is not an easy question. It's been a matter of no small confusion through the centuries. The grand story of the redemption of Israel from slavery in Egypt, I think, is a pattern that will help, actually, to understand this. The ransom price was the death of 100,000 or more of the firstborn Egyptian sons. So it was just a huge price paid for the release of God's people. Now, here's my question. Is the price paid to Pharaoh or to God? It's a very interesting question, isn't it? Was the ransom price, the redemption price, paid to Pharaoh or to God? Now, I think it would be ridiculous to think that Pharaoh was interested in receiving that ransom price. He didn't require it, certainly, and I don't think you would say that he received it. So, Scripture does not speak of the redemption price paid to anybody. So, we're really left with the plain truth that the price was established and the redemption ordained by God himself. There's no other way as decreed by God himself to bring about the redemption of his people from the slavery of sin and the devil. Here's another verse that's helpful to, to understand the redemption price that was paid for us. It comes from Romans 6 and verse 23. Most of us have memorized this. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. As far as our sin is considered a debt, I think that's helpful. That the reason why a redemption price is paid to free somebody from slavery is because they owe that servitude or they owe a debt to that slave master. So it's helpful to see that what we're doing is we're paying off a debt. Now, some theologians in the past thought that uh, this was paid to the devil. In fact, that's what the church thought for about a thousand years that the price was paid to the devil, but that doesn't have any real scriptural backing to it. The devil is owed nothing. The objective satisfaction theory that is held by Reformed denominations teach that the payment was made to God or to God's justice. I think it would be better to say it was paid to justice. Not so much to God, but to God's justice. This explains the payment of a debt to justice and to the law which is imposed. Law that had imposed the curse or condemnation upon the guilty sinner. Why must God himself get involved in order to pay the debt? There's a difference between a moral debt and a monetary debt that I think can be explained this way. So let me explain this in terms of this illustration of this little boy who runs into an ice cream shop looking for something. He orders the cone, then informs the shop owner he has no means to pay it. 
a stranger steps in and pays the monetary charge. Now, suppose the little boy takes the ice cream cone and runs away without paying it. Now we got a different situation, don't we? It's not a monetary debt, it's a moral debt. Okay, now you see the difference, don't you? It's a moral debt, and only the shop owner can find a way to pay the price and forgive the debt. You see, a stranger cannot now step in and say, here, let me pay, because the little boy owes not just the monetary debt, but the moral debt as well to the person from which he stole the ice cream. So it's only the person that was offended that can really deal with the debt, and in that case, it is God himself. Listen to Romans 3.26, to demonstrate the present time is righteousness, that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Also Galatians 3 and verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by giving us curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So we are redeemed or purchased from the curse of the law, from being under the law as a condemner and a taskmaster. Being in relationship to a principle, an authority, or a force that condemns and forces us into an impossible task is a burden too heavy to bear. Moreover, being a slave to sin, such that we were forever addicted to idolatry, self-worship, self-destructive behaviors, anger, bitterness, lust, and covetousness was a miserable condition, and nothing could free us from that but the blood of Christ. Our sinful condition kept us locked up in a bad servant-master relationship with law as well as a servant relationship to sin, as well as a servant relationship to the devil. And only the blood of Christ could have set us free from all of that. This redemption entails the crushing of the serpent's head, as depicted in the drowning of Pharaoh's army at the Red Sea. Christ broke the neck of the devil, incapacitating him from recapturing or enslaving God's people. A great cosmic battle was fought at the cross, impossible to visualize except as far as the dead, bloated bodies of Pharaoh's armies bobbed up on the shores might convey the effects of it. All right, let's move on to the fourth effect of the the death of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We already dealt with the forensic matter, the relational matter, and the spiritual matter. And now let's just touch on the uh, substantial matter, or the fact that substantially our nature had been corrupted by the fall, uh, by Adam's fall into sin. So Jesus came and by his death also restored life and health to us. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sins. 1 John 1 and verse 7. So the fourth benefit we receive from Christ's death is sanctification and life and cleansing. Healing, cleansing, restoring, resurrecting are the words used to describe that which replaces what was lost to the essential existence of man at the fall. It was a soul disease, soul death, soul defilement, that came upon us, and all of that could only be restored by the life of the Son of God given up for us at the cross. He died for all, that they would live for him who died and rose again. For them, his blood cleanses. The sacrifice of the body of Christ on the cross sanctifies us, Hebrews 10 and verse 14. And somehow, by means of a close identification or association with Christ, in his death and resurrection, the believer dies with Jesus and rises with Jesus to walk in newness of life, and this could never have happened without the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, brothers and sisters, four problems and four solutions. The first problem was man's relationship with God was broken. The second problem, 
Man's forensic problem in the divine court left him guilty and subject to eternal condemnation. The third problem is man's very substance or nature had been corrupted, which is a form of death. And then fourthly, man's spiritual condition had him under the grip and rule of Satan. And thanks be to God, Jesus came to take care of all of that for us by his birth, by his incarnation, his life, his death, and his resurrection. Praise be to Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you tonight for this reminder of all that Jesus has done for us. Oh God, we had been done for. We had been overwhelmed. We had, we had been completely bound by sin and Satan. We had been corrupted in our very nature. And uh, death was our ultimate end. And Father, we also were uh, separated from you by a great relational divide. And oh God, we, we were guilty guilty of eternal hellfire forever. All these things were what had, had overcome us by the fall of Adam into sin and the corruption and the, the guilt that came upon all of his posterity. Father, yet you stepped in by sending your only begotten son for us to bring about our great salvation and to restore all of this for us, including heaven and glory forever and ever for us. Father, we thank you for this, and Father, we pray that you would more and more increase our joy, increase our sense of all these great implications of what Christ has done for us, increase our faith and our hope as we consider these things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.